Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope over the last few weeks you've enjoyed our summer bonus specials where we've plunged the vault of specials in the uh, Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. And yeah, I've had a lot of feedback actually about the uh, one on the 1992 election. And it became a theme, one of the themes for a show at the Edinburgh Festival is this 1992. And I argued then, as I think I did in the bonus podcast, that there are very few parallels, if any, with 1992. And yet, if the Labour leadership fear it could be 1992, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. But uh, yeah, very interesting emails in response to that and on Twitter. And uh, yeah, the Enoch Powell from the Troublemakers series. And uh, next week, as we move into September, I'll announce the new series for Patreon. Anyway, for those of you who attended the Rock and Roll Politics Live shows in Edinburgh, thanks so much for coming along. I have to say, I've been doing these shows now for nine years at the Edinburgh Festival. These were the best attended, many of them sold out or virtually sold out, and and so engaged. And I learned a lot, and I'll be reflecting on some of the people I spoke to, senior politicians, members of the audience, members of our rock and roll politics cooperative who were up there. Yeah, on that very front, the idea for the next Patreon series of uh, bonus podcasts came from Stuart Grant, one of our cooperative who was up in Edinburgh, gave me a great idea. Stuart is one of our barometer listeners, voted Tory in December 2019, uh, is available to vote Labour, but he's not there yet. Um, Anyway, more of that next week. And just a reminder that on September the 13th, a brand new show, the opening of the new political year special live at King's Place. That's on September the 13th. So hope to see lots of you there live as we try to make sense of the new political year. And of course, it is in effect the pre-election year. Uh, I still think the election will be in the autumn of next year, so this will be the last set of party conferences, the last legislative programme, the spring budget will be the pre-election budget, etc. It's going to be fascinating. And just one other notice while we're all together, if it's okay with you, I've got a new book out in September. Uh, Publication date, I think, is September the 18th, and it is uh, Turning Points in Modern Britain. Crisis and Change, Turning Points in Modern Britain. It begins with 1945 and the election of the Labour government and ends with the turning point between the Liz Truss quasi-Quateng budget and weeks later the Jeremy Hunt budget overturning the Quateng budget. And in between there are many seismic events or elections explored. There are 10 of them. So, yeah, I'll be talking about that in a later podcast, uh, but it's available for pre-order. Dun, 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 dun. And I'll be speaking at book festivals and reflecting on it. OK, before all of that, yeah, what an autumn. Uh, it's not there yet. We've got to enjoy the days of summer. And I'm actually recording this uh, from the wonderful Beyond Borders Festival. Uh, after the Edinburgh Festival, do the last show on the Saturday and drive down to this wonderful event at uh, Traquair in the Borders, called Beyond Borders. And um, 
that too is a sort of epic festival, but a beautiful contrast to the frenzy of the Edinburgh Festival. So the new year politically begins, so to speak, with uh, Nadine Doris finally resigning in itself, quite a shock, given that her promise to resign was sort of 25 years ago. Um, But there we go. And we have that resignation letter of adolescent immaturity, unproven assertions, a defence of the Johnson regime, which does not stack up. So although she is right to say Sunak has shown very little interest in levelling up, it's not his instincts to pull levers and to invest. He doesn't, he's a fiscal conservative, he's a Thatcherite in an era where actually people are turning increasingly to the state. But the idea that Johnson had a fully developed, worked out programme for levelling up, or indeed social care, is part of her mythologising of her hero, Johnson. But it doesn't really matter. Uh, What that letter does is set a tone for the opening uh, salvos of the new political season. And it's a tone that really continues with the end of the last season, before the long summer recess, in the sense that it gives the impression of a deeply disturbed governing party. And that's the danger for Sunak. Not that Nadine Doris is one of life's great political heavyweights who is challenging him in a way that is intimidating and overwhelming. She is not. But anyone, even casually observing the flow of politics, will note a disturbed party when you have a letter of such anger. And that kind of then gives permission for all kinds of other things to happen. So what happens, you know, in terms of the media when you get a letter like the one from Nadine Doris? First of all, she gives an interview where she kind of uh, amplifies her anger at Sunak. And then uh, the BBC and Sky kind of phone around for other possible dissenting MPs. And although they don't get that level of dissent, they get people like John Redwood popping up demanding tax cuts now and a more Tory programme. They are speaking of a Prime Minister who is Tory, Tory, Tory. He is um, as right wing as Thatcher and Cameron. But never mind, it's not enough for them. And so that's the impact. Prime ministers in July always retire exhausted and especially at the end of a long period of government when you're a long way behind in the polls. It is psychologically exhausting for a prime minister to be a long way behind in the polls because poll leads give people a buzz. They're human beings and they scour the opinion polls every day and are either given a buzz by them, Keir Starmer at the moment gets a buzz from them, um, or are tormented by them. But at the end of July, a prime minister in trouble, and Sunak was and is in trouble, dares to hope that the summer break will lead to a kind of different mood when everyone begins to gather again, as they will do um, in September. It rarely works like that. 
I remember John Major, who again was leading a tired, divided, uh, difficult to lead governing party, kind of taking a break at the end of July and number 10 would brief, you know, lots of plans for a relaunch in September and September came and all that came with it was more trouble, deeper in some ways than the troubles of July. And that, I suspect, is what we are seeing now. Uh, Sunak seems to be uncertain about some of the levers available for leadership, uh, whether to do a reshuffle, what form the reshuffle should take, the timing of a reshuffle. And we'll have to face these kind of onslaughts. And at the start of the Conservative Party conference, Nadine Doris is publishing her book, which will detail, as she sees it, the um, uh, betrayal of Johnson and make further accusations about Sunak. And again, the tone will be self-absorbed and adolescent, but that will only be one factor. It will set the course to some extent of the opening of a Conservative Party conference, which is essential for Sunak to give him any hope of narrowing that Labour lead. And instead, on day one, he will be up doing his interview with uh, Laura Coombsberg and others, and he will be asked about whatever Doris has put in her book, and which will get extensive serialisation in the Mail on Sunday, which is read by many Tory supporters, and on it goes. But here is one thing I report back from Edinburgh, which is uh, interesting. Uh, I bumped into a senior Tory right at the heart of the uh, Tory operation on uh, Edinburgh Waverley Station, and he came to my show the following day. And he told me a series of interesting things, one of which is that from within number 10, the key figure for Sunak, and indeed beyond number 10, is uh, James Forsyth, which I found interesting. And this is a positive for Sunak because all leaders should have people who are close to them, who they have known for a long time, who they can trust without any doubts at all, who they respect and admire. Um, I think it's almost essential. And uh, I think one of the issues for Keir Starmer is because he's so relatively new to politics, uh, he hasn't got that. He has um, followed the advice of people like Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson and picked out people in his team who worked for Tony Blair and uh, others. And they are, of course, wholly committed to him now. Um, But it's not based on deep, deep ties of friendship and loyalty um, and and, and having been through a lot already together. Uh, Blair had that. He had known Alistair Campbell for many, many years, for example. Uh, He had known, of course, and uh, she had been with him throughout, Angie Hunter, rather like Marcia Williams had been with Harold Wilson. And I found it interesting that this senior figure said to me, he turns to James Forsyth. And he's got there a rock who he rates and respects and whose advice he will follow. And James Forsyth has been someone with a background in journalism, but immersed, of course, in the politics of the Conservative Party. And uh, anyway, I merely report that. And I think 
of all the epic problems Sunak has got, including his own inexperience. He has got someone who he can turn to, understands the rhythms of the media. I don't think Keir Starmer has got such a person. And who understands too, because he's followed it for so long, the curious dynamics of this changing Conservative Party, one that is increasingly difficult to lead. So there we are. I think if you want to know who is most significant in Sunak's repertoire of people, it's James Forsyth. But this figure also told me something else that's quite interesting. He said that um, the Tory party, when contemplating the next election, are more terrified of the threat from the Lib Dems in the south of England than they currently are anyway, with the threat posed by Labour in other parts of the country. Um, they think they are really vulnerable to the Lib Dems, where they dare to hope, in spite of that opinion poll lead, that the Labour lead is soft enough that they can deal with it. But they are scared of the threat from the Lib Dems. Now, that's interesting of itself, but um, it's interesting also because that is bound to influence strategic thinking within number 10. Uh, because as uh, we have witnessed from their rather pathetic attempts uh, this summer to run weeks, you know, boat people week, which ended up with people being evicted from a boat built to house the boat people. I mean, it's all bonkers. And, but then they would have an NHS week and an education week, and it made no impact whatsoever, really. Uh, it felt chaotic and not fully thought through. But there is part of number 10 that want to play a pretty vicious populist campaign in the build-up to the election, you know, really go for Starmer as part of an elite, you know, North London lawyer and all this uh, nonsense. But to do that could well alienate those potential Tory voters who are switching to the Lib Dems. Because if they're switching to the Lib Dems, they are not passionate supporters of this kind of populist English nationalism that is played sometimes by the Tory leadership. So what way are they going to go? How are they going to pitch Sunak in the next year? And if they're determined or are going to try and keep those who are going over to the Lib Dems in the south of England, they have to be careful. These are people who voted Remain on the whole um, and who don't respond to full-blooded kind of populism about judges and lawyers and we're going to withdraw from this and withdraw from that and if we have to break international law, we'll do it to back Britain, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I thought that was very interesting. Another thing I learned from Edinburgh, and, and, and by the way, uh, as many of you will know who come to the live shows, I don't ask people what they kind of think about things, but I do ask them to make predictions. And they're obviously people engaged with politics and follow politics. So while you might say, oh, yeah, we was up in Edinburgh, but that was the kind of people talking to each other, agree with each other on everything. Hey, I don't think that's true in itself, actually. But I ask these people who are completely engaged. And if they come to my thing and pay money and all the rest, they're, they're engaged with politics. I ask them to make predictions. And it was an interesting contrast from a year ago. A year ago, 
I asked one of the audiences to predict whether they thought uh, Keir Starmer would be Prime Minister after the next general election. Remember a year ago, Johnson was still Prime Minister, Liz Truss was looming, no one quite knew what the impact of Truss would be. Um, and anyway, a majority then predicted that he wouldn't be. Well, this year, I asked the same question at one of these shows, and all but two put their hand up predicting he would be Prime Minister. So it's a real shift. And then, though, it became very clear. I did 14 shows, a different theme each day. Uh, It's clear that that lead is still soft in the sense that, while I think the anti-Tory mood is absolutely settled and firm, there is still a lot of doubt about uh, the Starmer project in terms of what it stands for in the build-up to an election and what it would be like as a government, uh, a a Labour government facing these titanic challenges uh, in an era where not only is the economic context different from 1997, uh, but so are the assumptions and orthodoxies about uh, what we expect from a government has changed completely since 1997. So, yeah, I was asked a lot of questions about him, about their agenda, about how they govern without economic growth and how they generate that growth and whether they are too determined to reassure, reassure, reassure and brief constantly about what they're not doing, raising the question about what they are doing and so on. Now... They have got actually quite a lot of um, things that they are doing. But it's interesting that a completely engaged audience felt that persistently throughout the two weeks, I thought. And I noticed on Sunday, Rachel Reeves gave an interview to Sunday Telegraph, where again, it's what they were not going to do. You know, they would not um, have a, a, a high rate of income tax for high earners. They wouldn't do this. They wouldn't do that. And uh, yeah, and then out comes a briefing. You know, this shows we're serious about power and so on. Now, I understand why they're doing that, because as we've explored here in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative many times, the pre-election tax and spend debate is insane in Britain and childish. It makes Nadine Doris look like a kind of professor of economics. And and you kind of almost have to do something like this. But they clearly need to... being in opposition is almost like composing a bloody musical symphony. It, it, that there has to be a musicality to it all, as there was in 1997, uh, where the sort of Blair and Brown together made the cautious incrementalism seem exciting somehow and new. Um, and... Uh, there has to be that sense of excitement, not least when people feel so challenged by the dysfunctionality of Britain now. Um, I also asked one audience, there's an epic by-election coming up in Rutherglen in Scotland. I think the most important by-election for many decades where, of course, the SNP hold the seat, uh, but Labour uh, need to gain it to claim to be back in Scotland. 
huge moment uh and the audience and the audience for my shows i always ask how many from scotland how many from the rest of the uk and it's usually about 50 50 although i always joke it's 52 48 one way or another um but the audience predicted that labor would gain that seat but it was kind of two-thirds predicted it and one-third predicted that the SNP would hold it, which surprised me. Maybe there were a lot of SNP people in the audience that day and they didn't predict. They said what they hoped would happen. Um, but they observed something, which is another kind of theme which we need to explore in our time together in the coming months, which is that the Labour candidate in Rutherglen has had to say things uh, different from uh, the national London-based Labour leadership on things like whether he supports extending benefits for families with more than two children, etc., etc. And some thought in that those contortions the SNP had space to keep the seat. We will see. Most, as a big majority, two-thirds, one-third, thought uh, Labour would gain it. It's a very important moment. And, of course, the theme we need to explore is that between a central leadership, this is not just in opposition, but in government. Remember, Labour, in theory, pledged to transfer power outside of Whitehall in an historic way. Well, how and in what form? And what if the national leadership disagree with what's happening and so on? It's always every opposition proposes devolution, but how and whether it works in government where the Treasury and Rachel Reeves will want to keep an eye on how every halfpenny is being spent. Really complicated. Um, uh, but there we are. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a big by-election. Um, so, uh, yeah, so many lessons, to be honest. Um, we did the media, uh, the ratio between media and politics one day. And I asked the audience then to predict whether they thought the Sun newspaper would endorse the Tories and whether it mattered. And that was really interesting because the majority thought the Sun wouldn't do so because uh, Murdoch wouldn't want it to back the loser. I wonder about that. The Sun's coverage is pretty anti-Starmer. And, uh, yeah, we explored the impact. Will Hutton was in the audience. He was asking about the uh, impact of uh, AI on the next election campaign and um, all sorts of uh, themes were explored. Um, but I've got no doubt at all, whatever happens with social media and all the rest of it, uh, the role of newspapers remains quite important. Um, and I don't think we'll be in a 97 position where the sun screams for Labour, um, even if it doesn't fully endorse the Tories. Who knows? But I, it will matter because the BBC will then report it and so on. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be in for an epic time together. I'm on my never-ending tour. So if you don't mind, it's going to be shorter than usual. And because uh, we're driving off from Beyond Borders and uh, uh, back down, yeah, like Bob Dylan on never-ending tour. But um, do please start sending your emails. Some of you very kindly didn't acknowledge what I said in August. I said, yeah, just relax from emails because uh, we're doing those uh, bonus specials in August and uh, won't have time to read emails out. Though, but I've been still been reading them. They've been brilliant. 
so thank you very much. And I'll hopefully include some of them uh, next week. And uh, please, yeah, we're back to kind of normal, whatever normal means in the current political situation. So if you've got any thoughts, ideas um, to the cooperative, let me know what you're all doing. That was great. Some people told me what they were doing when they listened in Edinburgh. Um, all kinds of things from in bed to in a bath, which um, was interesting, to the familiar themes of running. So yeah, I'm going to, I've stopped running. I've got to start running again. I was thinking of doing a, a, a Keep Fit podcast with us all. But anyway, you see, after two weeks in Edinburgh, you start going a bit crazy. Um, well, I do. I mean, I did a show every day kind of enjoyed it as well um it's very interesting the whole dynamic of um live events and i'll give you another example of that sorry i'm i'm keeping you all from finishing your running and baking and stuff but at beyond borders they have these great international events and um i chaired a session about ukraine which was very interesting and uh uh, somebody in the audience was from Ukraine. The, the Beyond Borders organisers bring people over from all kinds of troubled areas around the world. And she was very interested about Zelensky. She said it kind of reminded us that Zelensky is a politician like Sunak's a politician. He's kind of revered here and in the United States and in other parts of Europe. But she was saying how in the election... Uh, this woman from Ukraine at this event, uh, she hadn't voted for Zelensky. And she, you know, like we're embarrassed by Johnson being this kind of person who rose from via Have I Got News For You? And she said she didn't vote for Zelensky. And she was a bit embarrassed going around talking about this person who had been a stand-up comedian who was now running their country. But she has, of course, been... Uh, converted by the courage because a lot of them she was interesting she said there was an assumption when the russian invasion first happened that uh he would leave he had apparently he could have gone he had the chance to go and he didn't of course and uh she says a lot of people who didn't vote for him have been kind of one round but that internal domestic politics continues you know, he has had to address various issues in doing domestic ones. And, of course, inev inevitably in doing so, has his critics and opposition and concerns and so on. And it was good, actually, to remind people or to humanise these people who become caricatures, in a way, uh, from the outside. Uh, yeah, so that's about the live event. Like, God, yeah, the last day. I was so tired. I, f I tripped on a step going onto the stage and fell. I pretended I'd rehearsed it. Anyway, look, thank you uh, for listening. Have a great week and let's get together. Do send your emails, steverick14 at icloud.com um, and say do book for King's Place. It's going to be an epic, the opening of the political season. And you can pre-order my new book, which I'll be reflecting on in this podcast by posing this question. Are we now reaching an historic turning point where orthodoxy since the 80s have been fundamentally challenged? And if so, what form would that take by looking at previous apparent turning points from 1945 but that's to come uh thank you so much for tuning in as i say i'm on the road now heading back down uh, from beyond borders and let's all get together very soon once more 
to make sense of it all. Thank you very much. Bye.